according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. You may turn your Bibles as we get started to Matthew chapter 9. We are in episode number 9 of the Galilean ministry, working our way through the harmony of the Gospels. And uh, we almost got through the material last week to complete this entire episode. And uh, I thought if we just stick with it a little bit longer, we could rush our way through it. And then now there's too much here that doesn't need to be rushed through. It needs to be very carefully uh, considered and dealt with. So we're going to use today's session to wrap that up. I don't anticipate moving on to episode 10. So if, uh, if we do wrap this up, earlier rather than later, then maybe we'll just take some questions and go through some things. I do want to do some uh, some additional work on the Pharisees, though. So if we have time left over, then uh, I'll read a selection from uh, a couple of different sources on the Pharisees and make sure we're solid because there's going to be a lot of encounters with these Pharisees again and again and again up to and including the crucifixion itself. So uh, we want to make sure we're solid on who those Pharisees are. I think there's some misconceptions there that uh, hopefully we can sort out. So Matthew chapter 9 then, and before we start, it would do us no good to sit here in carnality, so let's take time for silent prayer and make sure that we are uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together and to receive instruction. We thank you for... Uh, the traveling mercies you provided to bring uh, Pastor Hugh Crowder here safely. We are looking forward to the beginning of our conference this evening. And as, uh, as you delay sending your son, Father, day by day, we're looking forward to each session of this conference. Just thankful that you have uh, supplied our, our every need and beyond anything we could ask or think. Father, we are excited to uh, be able to study to show ourselves approved and to learn from the living and abiding Word of God. We pray for this hour now that you would set aside distractions and give us concentration, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have uh, Susie must be in the nursery there. We're covering that nursery at a volunteer basis for the moment, trying to get uh, someone in here to cover our Wednesday morning uh, session. Is that right? Susie's back there? Or Susanna's probably back there. Susanna's back there. All right. All right, Matthew chapter 9 then. This is probably one of the better known episodes just because it's so vivid, it's so graphic. Here's this guy, he's paralyzed, he can't move, he can't walk, and they, they got him laid out on this bed of some sort on the stretcher, and they're trying to get him in, but it's so crowded, they can't get him in through the door or window maybe or whatever, so they end up going up on the roof and digging through the roof and lowering him down through, uh, through the center of the roof to get him down in the midst of where... Jesus uh, then get his attention and uh, I imagine a carpenter that would get your attention if you're a carpenter by trade and all of a sudden a hole opened up in the roof you tend to spot that kind of thing I was stunned at how much the uh, home inspector found yesterday in this home uh, Sharon and I knew there was a lot of work to be done but boy that inspector looked at it and gave us a list 300 miles long and we thought wow well the difference being is there was a carpenter's eye looking at it and seeing all the all the problems well, yeah, this caught the Lord's attention, and he uh, is impressed. And uh, he, we have the declaration here. It's interesting. It says, um, where do I want to read from this morning? Either the Matthew account or, we'll just read from the Matthew account. 
um, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed and seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. All three gospel records, Matthew, Mark and Luke, all make reference to the fact that Jesus acknowledged the pistis faith that was not only possessed, but also acted upon. That this was a faith that they, we tend to think of faith as some passive thing, something that we have, something that's internal, a part of our thinking. But actually faith is the confidence in an object that then motivates an action. And in this case, the action is to, uh, to bring him down through the roof. All three gospel accounts make reference to that faith. And uh, so he says, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Just what you would not expect. You would expect that the issue is a healing issue. The issue is he's, he's paralyzed. He needs to be healed. Well, the real issue is, is that uh, there's a sin p- pattern here that has, this man has been struggling with. And uh, that needs to be taken care of first and foremost. All right, just by way of review, the points of study, we're only going to give you just a handful of items out of this text. We did observe how Capernaum becomes the base from which uh, the Galilean tours would go forth. A little bit of geography study that's going to go with that. And you'll observe the location of Capernaum and how ideal it was for not only ministering west as far as that Galilean region, but then getting on a boat, crossing the, the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret and, and ministering on the eastern shores as well. We also noticed the increased fame. With the larger crowds and greater fame came increased scrutiny uh, certainly with all the crowds that are flocking and and mark really makes reference to this in uh, in his reference that it was they were packing it out so badly that uh, it was standing room only in a lot of places and and sometimes he couldn't even publicly go into a city he had to sneak into a city or stay in the stay in the suburbs or stay in the outskirts as it were um, but in at the end of mark chapter 1 verse 45 it said that uh, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. And, you know, that's the kind of fame and that's the kind of uh, attention that can be a huge snare, can be a, a huge stumbling block and can uh, take a person who might otherwise be normally, you know, humble or have a level head on his shoulders and just immediately start puffing up his head to where he starts thinking that he must be must be something pretty special or otherwise these crowds wouldn't be gathering around. Wow, I must be pretty amazing. Look at all these people coming to listen to me. All right. And to maintain humility in, a, in the midst of a prosperity test, in the midst of the fame and the accolades, see, is, is extraordinary. Solomon blew it, couldn't handle the, the prosperity test. Satan couldn't handle the prosperity test. Some of these things that we have studied. Here in Mark chapter 2, it says um, many were gathered together in Mark 2, 2, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And so when you exhaust your seating and you bring in extra seating and then it's standing room only and you still can't even get through the front door, uh, you know that there's, there's positive volition there to hear a message. Or at the very least, there's a curiosity as far as what, what is the attraction here with respect to this person. Keep that in mind, because by the time we get to John chapter 6 and the bread of life and other passages, uh, the Lord's really going to start nailing some people as far as why they're here. You know, you're not here to hear the word. You're here because your belly was fed or you're here because you like miracles or you're here for the, the sensationalism of it. And some people flock to churches because there's a big name guy there and there's a lot of people there. And, you know, it's a mega church, 3000 people on a Sunday. It must be a good church. And so they start going there. All right. And uh, there's a lot to be said for. 
caution when it comes to greater fame. And I'll just bring this Luke 5 passage to your attention once again. Because in Luke 5.17, I think you want to back up to verse 16 and keep in mind there that it was the prayer humility that kept everything focused. That as, as news keeps spreading, it says, the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And that there is, is the, the anchor. That's the orientation that keeps everything in perspective and daily keeps him humble before the Father. What work do I need to do today? What assignment would you have me do today? And not be, uh, not be caught up in the excitement of all of the, uh, the crowds and the fame. Under the third point, there were some subpoints with this, but we're just passing along. Um, under the third point, the paralytic and his friends, the faith is, is actually ascribed to not just the paralytic, but to the associates as well, their faith, plural. The paralytic and his friends demonstrated their faith in Jesus by a willingness to do whatever is necessary. We discussed the aspect of the book of James and how faith without works is dead and how faith will have evidence. Faith will prompt activity. Faith will prompt decisions that, that are observable. And uh, in their case, um, their faith was demonstrated by the actions that they took. Under point four, in the presence of these critical observers, Jesus turned the focus from physical healing to the forgiveness of sins. And the, the presence of these Pharisees is what we're going to spotlight again today. They were critical observers. They weren't there, we know, from maybe not this context immediately, although I think it's here, but other contexts as well, and it only grows the hostility, the jealousy, the envy that, you know, when they show up and they're not there to get fed, they're not there to learn, they're not there to grow, they're there to criticize, they're there to find fault, they're there to see what's wrong with this guy so they can expose him, all right? And so reading from the Matthew account again, Matthew 9 when he when he makes this statement about sins being forgiven and then they immediately get critical of that and say, that's blasphemy. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Uh, I think their heart is then exposed for what it is. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes, you know, this fellow. How scornful. What a title of all the names of God or all the names of glory that the Lord Jesus Christ is entitled to. He has a name which is above every name that has been named. And they call him this fellow. You know, what is that? And, uh, but that's their attitude. And is he aware of that? Of course he's aware of that. He's a prophet. The Lord uh, uh, was always aware of who his audience was, what their needs were, where they were coming from, what the approach was. Not because he was using omniscience, but because as a prophet, uh, these were the, these were the uh, things he was uh, privy to. And uh, so he turns it to an aspect of forgiveness. And... By doing so, he's making very clear the deity that, that they're denying is in fact what he's claiming. All right? But he knows who the audience is. He knows where their hostility is. And, and he has that in his thinking as he's ministering. And I think that's a pattern too that we need to be aware of. If we're, if we're, uh, you know, if we're in a Bible class setting like this and we pretty well know one another and we know that we're all believers and that can be our, our uh, understanding and we teach the Word of God on a normal basis, that's pretty much normal around here. But if the setting was different, if we're in a, in a different realm and we think there's unbelievers present, we, you know, we may be tailoring a message perhaps to make sure the gospel comes across, to make sure that there is a, a clear uh, a testimony to grace and so forth. You have to know who you're teaching and, and where they're coming from.
And the Lord does that here very well. Now, with respect to this, he knows his audience. These are critical observers. And uh, in particular, when he says your sins are forgiven, we're led to understand that, you know what? He might be under divine discipline, that this paralysis could be divine discipline for his sins. Um, The text doesn't out and out say that for sure. But the indication is that when he says your sins are forgiven, that that may be a reasonable conclusion to come to that uh, it's obviously between him and the Lord. And these are the words between him and the Lord. The Lord says your sins are forgiven. And uh, you can look up Psalm 103, 3 and Isaiah 19, 22 and, and many other passages. There's many instances where sickness was assigned as as divine discipline in order to humble a person and wake them up and that kind of thing. Think about Nebuchadnezzar and his seven years living like an animal. And Miriam was given uh, leprosy. And there's plenty of examples of that. And uh, the Lord is able to, to minister there. But now thinking about these critical, these critical observers, if this man was under divine discipline, what does that mean? That means that the Father assigned that discipline for his chastisement, for his correction, for his humbling. All right? And so if the Lord just comes along and says, boom, you're healed, how could that be viewed? That could be viewed as disagreement with the Father. That could be viewed as a work contrary to the Father's work because the Father put him under divine discipline and Jesus comes along and says, okay, you're healed, you're no longer paralyzed, get up and go home. See? Now, Jesus never does anything apart from the will of the Father. We know that. He testifies to that. And every miracle he does is consistent with the will of the Father. But if, uh, if he doesn't make this very clear that your sins are forgiven... If he doesn't make it very obvious that the divine discipline now is is being brought to a close and that forgiveness has been granted, then what could these Pharisees say? What could these scribes say? There could be what could the accuser say? See, because ultimately the it's the adversary is the one that's motivating the accusations, the slander, the murder, the crucifixion and everything else. They could look at Jesus and say, well, look, you're healing this guy, but he's under divine discipline. So you're at odds with the father. All right. Now, it wouldn't be a fair accusation. Of course not. But it could be it could be levied if Jesus doesn't go to the point now to say your sins are forgiven. You're no longer under divine discipline. This is in accordance with the father's will. You see what I'm saying? This has to be done in this uh, out in the open so that everyone is aware of this. All right. We'll deal more with this as well, because. The Lord gets very specific when he says, you're of your father, the devil. You desire to do the things of your father. He just makes it very clear that there is a conflict, an angelic conflict going on here. And that these Pharisees are the brood of vipers. They are the tools, the instruments, the agents that uh, are being used in this uh, this regard. So then, the forgiveness of sins is vital prior to the physical healing as a public witness to the critical eyes as a public witness to the critical eyes. And part of that great psalm in in 1 Timothy 3.16, the mystery of godliness, is that he was beheld by angels, taken up in glory. And all the material that's there in 1 Timothy 3.16, it was not just in the eyes of man that our Lord was ministering, but also in the eyes of angels, elect and fallen angels. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.8 as well, if, if the rulers of this age had understood God's wisdom, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There was a demonic component, a fallen angel component to the uh, crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Some people say, you know, you get in this debate. Well, who crucified Christ? Was it the Jews or was it the Romans? Say, and it's a dumb argument anyway, because it's not an either or. You say, well, they both 
had a role. You know, the Romans had a role. The Jews had a role. Uh, but then again, you could also look at the angelic component as well. It was not just human beings involved. What was the uh, what was the angelic conflict at that point? What was the satanic motivation at that point? And I think when you really examine it in the full aspect of angelic conflict, the rulers of this age, as they're portrayed there in 1 Corinthians 2.8, becomes an interesting study. Now, we left off, and this is where we'll wrap it up today, the logic that the Lord provides. It's called a fortiori, that is, from uh, the stronger to the weaker. It's a, it's a Latin phrase, and uh, it's, it's a logical premise, and it's included in all three gospel accounts. The Lord says, which is harder? Which is harder? Okay? And it's a, it's a very simple tool. It's a device that even children can understand. We have it here in Matthew 9. It's in verse 5. It's also in Mark. It's also in Luke. Because when they start grumbling, and Jesus knowing their thoughts, how did he know their thoughts? Not because of omniscience, but because he's a prophet, a spirit-filled prophet. And again, if we have time at the end of this hour, remind me, and I'll, I'll walk you through this once again, because he cannot be using omniscience at any time. He has laid aside his privileges. He is not using deity. All right? And if we have time at the end of this hour, I'll walk you through that as well. Uh, but knowing their thoughts, he said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier? So there's the question. Which is easier? Because logic now steps in. And if he can do what's harder, then what's easier follows automatically. All right? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Well, now clearly... From the Pharisees' perspective and the scribes' perspective, everything they focus on is is performance, <laughs> right? How are the people going to receive this? How are they going to be esteemed in the eyes of man? How, you know, and, and performance is everything to the legalist. And performance is and and so when it comes to what's easier, what's harder in a in a performance context, well, rise up and walk is is a lot harder, because if that guy doesn't get up and walk. You've just ruined the whole performance, right? Now, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. You know, you can put on a performance there, put on a show there, and, and who's to say? There's no visible evidence. There's no way to know, right? So that's obviously the easy statement to make. And any charlatan, any huckster can come along and say your sins are forgiven. And there, there's nothing difficult about it, no, nothing tough about that. But to say, get up, you're, uh, you're healed, take up your pallet, and walk, go home, now, that's a much harder statement to make because uh, the, the consequences of, of exposure, of failure, of, of being ridiculed for being a phony or a fraud are immediate. See, and well, guess what? He gets up and walks. So Jesus has just done the harder. And having done the harder, what does that say about the easier? See, it's well within his potential, Right. It'd be like if you're used to running. I don't run anymore. I, I ran. I probably ought to start. And I, I know I got nurses in my church, and people are telling me as you get to these years and so forth, you need to do better with exercising. All right. I haven't run. I mean, the army made me run, and then I left the army, and then the sheriff's department made me run occasionally. So I ran occasionally. But you know, the Lord blessed me to get out of the sheriff's department on Christmas Eve, 1999, and. I don't believe I've done any jogging or running or anything, all right? But now, if I was a runner, we've got runners in the church, Sandy and Glenn Allen and some of these others, they'd run marathons. They'd run 26 miles, which is 
mind-boggling. I, I'm impressed by people with that kind of dedication to their sport or to their pastime. That's a lot more than I would have. Okay, But now, if, if you can run, if you can physically run 26 miles without dropping dead, right? if you're capable of doing that, then how about uh, a 100-meter dash? You know, could, could you handle that? Is that within your, is that within your capabilities? See? Well, of course you can. Because you can do the 26 miles, you know, that maybe a, a little capital 10,000 or something minor like that is just 10Ks or whatever. That's, that's simple because you can do the greater. That's the logic. And that's what we want to try to illustrate here today. It's called A Fortiori as a principle. We have it in all three of these gospel records, but I want to take you to Romans because that's really my favorite of all the places where this concept comes out. Romans chapter 8. And, and you know, I, I think this is also just such a huge tool. Um, for answering legalism, for answering works, for answering so many things, for answering eternal security. Uh, if you've got friends that, that are struggling with some issues, a lot of cases, this Romans 8 passage really helps to lay some things out there. Okay, Romans 8.32, and this is the, the, there's others in the scripture, but I think this is the best uh, example when you think about everything that we have in Christ, and Romans 8 tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and the blessings we have of being believers, and we have God as our Father, and we can cry out, Abba, Father, and everything that we have going for us. And the point is, is that he did that for us when we were enemies. He gave his son while we were lost, while we were in darkness, while we were opposed to him. All right. And this is everything he did. And when we fall short, he makes up the difference. And everything here in chapter 8 is just so encouraging in so many different ways. Uh, verse 26 says that uh, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What a promise. When the human beings fall short, God's grace takes up the slack, makes, makes up the difference. And so I, I've commented a couple of times that in our prayer meetings or in your private prayers, when you're engaged in the priestly function of prayer, God is allowing you, in a way now, if you think about it, He's allowing you to step into His omniscience. Because when your knowledge falls short and you just leave it with Him and say, Lord, this is what I know, this is what I'm praying for, He can make up the difference. See, because we don't have all the facts, but He does. And so I pray based upon what I know but when I don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit does. He takes over and intercedes. And so in a way, I step into his omniscience when I'm engaged in my priestly function of prayer. I also step into his omnipresence, don't I? Because I can't teleport to Seattle or I can't teleport to where my parents live. But in prayer, boom, I'm right there. I can lift up my mother and father in prayer. And it's like I just stepped into omnipresence, didn't I? Because in prayer, there I step into omnipotence too. Because through prayer, God the Father exercises His power. So the omni-attributes are mine when I'm engaged in the priestly function of prayer. Then verse 28, God works all things together for good. There's a promise, and all of this is encouragement. When I fall short, grace makes up the difference. Verse 29, and this whole chain of things here that happens in verses 29 and 30. All the works of God on our behalf. But now I want you to notice... Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Sometimes your, your prayer life just gets that simple because <laughs> everything else is falling apart and all you can do is just fall back and say, well, Lord, you're on my side. Take care of this, right? 
When you're that frazzled, when you don't know because of a health test, a financial test, a marriage test, and everything else, just stack on top of one another. Give it to the Lord. Say, Lord, you're on my side. Deal with it. Right? And Paul did the same thing. When he was frazzled, he said, you know what? I'm determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. (laughs) There's the Apostle Paul after 20 years of ministry saying, guess what? I'm saved and the Lord will take care of that. No, nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then in verse 32, now here's the a fortiori logic. It says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Alright? And that's the logic. Because what He's already done to save us is the hardest thing He could ever do. To give His Son... To, to allow His Son to die. To place judgment and wrath upon His Son. To lay our sins upon His Son. That's the hardest thing imaginable. That's the pinnacle. That's the ultimate. That's the most. And since He can do that, and He did that, anything else now He does for us is a lot easier. <laughs> and not only that, but He did that. When did He do that? When we were enemies. He died for us while we were unrighteous. And if he could do that then, what's he going to do now that we're no longer enemies? Now we're, we're children, we're sons, we're daughters, we're loved ones, we're in Christ. See, so if he could do the most then when we were enemies, what can he do now that's so much easier and so much more natural? It's natural to... Uh, give good things to your children. It's natural to provide for your loved ones. It's natural to bless and encourage them. What's unnatural is to lay down your life for your enemy. That's unnatural. See? And difficult. So since he's done the hardest, now that we're saved, anything goes. Anything goes. Beyond anything we could ask or think. I thought Spurgeon said it best when he said, we ask too little of a God, I'm misquoting it now, but we ask too little. Or we underestimate a God that's so much bigger than we can, we can ask. See, we can't out-ask Him. Alright, so there's the logic. The sixth point, returning back to our text. The claim to forgiveness was indeed a claim of deity. The claim to forgiveness was indeed a claim of deity kills me every time these skeptics say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. You know? Are you kidding me? He claimed it over and over and over and over again. That's why these Pharisees and scribes and the experts in the law, that's why they kept picking up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They knew what he was claiming. So, I mean, it's really an ignorant argument. And, and you'll hear it all the time. People will tell you that, well, Jesus never claimed to be deity. And if you really want to take the time to explain it to the, to the critic or whoever you're debating, you can you know, find a tactful way to do it, but you can call him a blithering idiot. Right? Because Jesus made tons of claims of deity, and that's why these Pharisees and scribes, they recognize them as being claims of deity. Which, if he wasn't deity, would be blasphemy. But because he is God, it's not blasphemy. See? And so you have to ask, well then, if he never claimed to be deity, why did, the, why did they try to stone him so many times for claiming deity? For making himself out equal to be God when he said, I and the Father are one. All right? Well, so you, you have to, you, it has to go one of two ways. Either the Pharisees were blithering idiots, right? We know they weren't. 
We know they were ge- brilliant geniuses. They, they, they studied the law all their life. They thrived on it. They, were, they, were, they memorized it to a legalistic fault. They were, I mean, they were in the Word. They were not stupid. You can't say that they were. But that's the only conclusion you can come to, is either they were wrong or misinformed or stupid, or maybe it's your argument that's pretty off track. Jesus Christ claimed deity again and again and again and again. The principle is true. That uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? And uh, that's why we use these texts in part as evidence for the deity of God the Son, the deity of Jesus Christ, is that uh, the forgiveness of sins is uh, a, a privilege of deity, and Jesus Christ exercised that privilege. Therefore, Jesus Christ is deity. That's, that's the conclusion you come to. So all three Gospels, in fact, give that account. Point seven. Not only that, the act of healing the paralytic was a messianic sign. What else would you expect him to do? Isaiah, 700 years ago, said he was going to do this. And he shows up and he starts doing this. And then the Pharisees grumble about it. Particularly if it happens to be the Sabbath when he does this. (laughs) Right? Well, you did a good thing, but you're still a Sabbath breaker. You're breaking our Sabbath, see. It became their Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath arrived and it didn't look anything like it was originally intended because of what they'd done to it over all those years. The Sabbath was designed, uh, you know, he says, you got this backwards. Was man designed for the Sabbath or was the Sabbath designed for man? And you guys, you're using this as a tool to control people's lives. It was indeed. Join me in Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 35. We'll take a look at it. Isaiah 35. Verses 5 and 6. Now, it's interesting because as this chapter begins, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. There's a lot of um, language here of of, prof, of uh, uh, territorial blessings, of the land itself being blessed, the things that we associate with Second Advent fulfillment. All right? And... Um, It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. Uh, The glory of Lebanon will be given it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Anyway, a lot of this is second advent. It's waiting the the future kingdom and the blessings there. But now notice, uh, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Okay, now that's again second advent. We've already looked at this that uh, when when Jesus was in the synagogue in Capernaum and he was reading that Isaiah text from Isaiah 61 and he stopped before he got to the day of vengeance part. He stopped because that's second advent. All right. And we did some homework then to talk about the term I called prophetic shift. Do you remember that prophetic shift where we have both a first advent and a second advent prophecy in the same Old Testament passage, okay? Now, in Isaiah 61, it led off with the first advent and then merged into second advent all in one context. Here it's the other way around. Here we have second advent prophecies with vengeance and recompense and so forth and the millennial blessings of the uh, blossoming Arabah there. Uh, But then now notice that verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. There's your healing of the paralytic. 
and uh, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams from the Arabah. And it goes on and it returns right back to Second Advent again. And you say, well, wait a minute. How does this work then? Isn't this whole entire thing Second Advent? No, because we turn to Matthew and we'll take a look at it. The Lord himself uses this as an encouragement to John the baptizer. Matthew 11, 4 through 6. And we're going to spend a lot of time in this when we get to this episode in the Harmony of the Gospels. Because I really believe that John has been, for 2,000 years now, he's been wrongly uh, maligned as being a weak sister, being a you know, losing heart and somehow falling to pieces just because he's in jail. I don't believe that his question demonstrates a weak faith. I believe that his question demonstrates a very mature faith. And we'll deal with that. Um, John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And that's not negative. That's positive. I think all too often, though, we read skepticism. We read negativity. We read despair in verse 3 that really doesn't belong there. All right. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go... And report to John what you hear and see. And look at these words in verses five. In verse five, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. All right, he's citing Isaiah 35. He's citing, among other things, the passage we just looked at there. See, which was otherwise, from all external views, a second advent fulfillment, wasn't it? But here Jesus Christ is saying, look at this. I'm fulfilling part of this right here, right now, in first advent. Okay, that's just why rightly dividing the word of truth becomes important and why we have to recognize the prophetic shifts between first advent and second advent prophecies. All right. And then he says, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. We'll have more to say on that in our first Corinthians series as we study stumbling blocks next week. Now, while I'm here, while you have this in your thinking, just look at first Peter chapter one and verse 10, because I think this this spells it out. All right. First Peter one ten telling us that John wasn't a sissy. He wasn't growing weak in his faith. But as far as rightly dividing the word of truth, we've got to quit using our church age perspective to look back at those Old Testament prophets as if they were a bunch of uh, knuckleheads. Okay, because they weren't. And it says, as to, in 1 Peter 1.10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So they were careful about it. They weren't sloppy. They weren't lazy. Seeking to know, now notice, what person or time, either way, was it a person or was it a time, what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Okay? That is what the Old Testament prophets struggled with. That is what John the Baptist was struggling with. Because they have all these prophecies and some of them were, were kingdom and glory and victory and rah-rah and, and peace and uh, abundant, you know, blooming uh, Arabah and all this other stuff. Those were great messages. But then there were other prophecies about suffering, about crucifixion, about the Lamb and all these other things. And and you can imagine when you're looking at both pictures, you're saying, wait a minute, how's that going to work? And it tells us right here that they'd come to these two conclusions, either person 
or time. Okay? And they were seeking to determine what person or time. Now, what do we know? We're church-age believers with a, a perspective of hindsight to first advent and uh, looking forward to second advent. We, because we have the New Testament revelation, we know that the answer there is time. The answer is, is that he's going to come the first time to suffer and he's going to come the second time to, to reign. And so we know that the answer is time, that there are two times attached to these, we call them two advents, attached to these prophecies. But prior to us, they didn't know. The question is, what person or time? Are there, in fact, two persons? Are there, in fact, two Mashiach uh, anointed ones, two people? Is there going to be a Messiah who's going to come and suffer? And is there going to be another Messiah who comes and reigns? Okay. And, and at the time, it's a legitimate question because it's still mystery. It's still unfolding. It's still not yet revealed. So it is a very legitimate question to examine these prophecies and say, are, are there two people coming? Or is it the same person coming at different times? Okay. Now, just because we know the answer, don't then go back and call John the Baptist here an idiot when he says, and look at his question, it's not a doubting, fearful question. He just simply says, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Is there another? Because the prophets who prophesied of old make careful search and inquire, seeking to know what person or time. Okay? And so John's not weak in his faith here. He just wants to know how is this going to play out? Are you the one and the, the, the kingdom's coming later? Or are you the one that's here to suffer and there's another one that's coming to reign? Okay? And it's a positive faith, a statement of faith. And I like the way the Lord took what was largely a second advent prophecy to encourage John the Baptist to say, look, look at these miracles. Look at the deaf hearing and the blind seeing and these lepers cleansed and the lame walking and all this other stuff. It's, uh, you know, don't lose heart. So uh, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. This was indeed a messianic sign. And uh, so they should have acknowledged deity. They should have acknowledged him as the Messiah. And it's only their hardness of heart, the pride and the arrogance that does not allow them to do so. Point eight. The result was praise and glorification. You know, it's recorded in all the Gospels. Praise and glorification. That is on the part of those that were there for legitimate reasons. Those that were there to get teaching. Those that were there to be healed. Those that were there under positive volition. But the Pharisees and scribes, these that showed up to be critical, well, we're going to find that criticism is only going to grow. It's only going to grow. That resentment only festers the longer it lingers. And so we read it in Matthew 9.8. It says, but when the crowds... And, and, and it really does draw a distinction between the crowds and the scribes. Uh, the crowds saw this. They were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Authority to forgive sins. Authority to take up the pallet and walk. Uh, in the Mark account, Mark 2.12. Similar language. Mark 2.12. He got up, immediately picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. They never heard anything like it. And they testify that, you know, this teaching is unique. And we never heard teaching like this before. And now they're seeing things they've never seen before. And then in Luke 5, 25 and 26. 
Immediately he got up before them, picked up what had been, he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear. That's the godly fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. Can we glean some of this excitement? Can we glean some of this zeal? Uh, you know, the charismatics, they, they thrive on the experience and wow, great things are happening. But they, I think, miss the track in terms of, sure, there's great things happening. Sure, there should be some excitement. We should have a sense of wonder and awe at what God's doing. But we should also carry it that next step and make sure he gets the glory for what he's doing. See, all too often when it comes to these faith healers, and these other guys, they're all dazzled at the fun things they can do or great things they think they're doing. But it, it's not giving glory to God. It's they're taking the glory for themselves building their own name, their own ministry, writing their own books, and all the rest. No, giving glory to God. Even as this resentment starts growing and growing and growing, we're going to see it a number of different times. I think it's illustrated very well in John 11 and verse 48. But in between where we are today and where we'll be when we get to John 11, it just we're going to see it in stages more and more and more and more resentment. And that will be clear as we take the time to break down the uh, Pharisees and who they were. I like what it says here in verse 47, John 11. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? All right. You know, they, ha they have a real chance here <laughs> to do something right. They can't dispute the miracles. And, and, and Nicodemus testified to that in chapter 3. And he noticed, he says, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, that's really the problem in their eyes. You know, we read this and say the whole world will believe in him. All men will believe in him. That's great. You know, that's a good thing. They're not looking at it like good news. Okay. This is a problem to them. It's a huge problem to them because it's threatening their powers, threatening their influence. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And look what they give the higher priority. <laughs> Not the survival of the Jewish nation, but their place. As, you know, the leaders, as the rulers, as those that are calling the shots, as those that have control. All right. That's really what it comes down to there as far as that is concerned now we've got some time left i uh, promised i'd read some things um the uh by the way i think i recommended this before it's not the first time we've encountered the pharisees um the uh it's, it's a worthwhile study uh because when you you read through the whole old testament you finish malachi you turn to matthew you start reading the new testament and a lot of things have happened in those 400 years all right all of a sudden you're introduced to Pharisees, and you're like, where'd these guys come from? You never found them anywhere in the Old Testament. You know, and who's this Herod guy? And what are these Romans doing here? And there's a lot that happens in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so intertestamental studies are very fruitful studies. Now, on the uh uh I didn't mean to go there. On the Grace Notes homepage, you have some material available for uh additional information. In addition to our church webpage. Uh, Grace Notes, and we link to Grace Notes quite often. There is an article on the uh, scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and it's simply titled, uh, I believe it's alphabetized here under the letter S, Sects and uh, Parties of the Jews. 
And so, great material here, and I won't, won't read the entire thing. Um, I'll learn my shortcuts here. We can make it even larger, maybe. Wow. <laughs> Doesn't have to be that large. Um, but it'd be a good study for you. It'd be good to find out the who are these Sadducees, who are these Pharisees, who are the Essenes, although they don't come up as much in the Bible. It, it's still good factual information for you to go. Um, why were they in such competition with one another? And then why were they able to set that aside for the moment when they can unite together to crucify Christ? <laughs> All right. Why is it that they could uh, come together and they could find agreement with the Herodians, see, to crucify the Christ? Otherwise, they pretty much despise the Herodians. But we have common ground in attacking Christ. You know, it's amazing how a lot of these other religions, Buddhists and Hindu and Islam, all these other, sometimes they kill each other. But you know what? A lot of times, though, they come together in their opposition to Christ, don't they? All right. It's interesting how that works. Um, so grace notes uh, and the material there on sects and parties of the Jews. I would recommend that you download that and read that. The uh, another resource that I really enjoy is the uh, Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. And I do want to read part of that. So let me pull this up here. And uh, I'll read the um, article on the Pharisees. And then we'll talk, take some questions and dismiss you for the afternoon. Because if all you have to go with is the Gospels, all right, I think you, you have a, a, a distorted view. Uh, if all you know about the Pharisees is what you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right, in the book of Acts maybe, uh, then uh, they're a bunch of jerks, <laughs> right? They're, they hate Christ. They're serving the devil. They're evil. They're, they're, they're manipulative. They're power hungry. They control people's lives. You have nothing but a negative picture, Okay. And what you miss is their origin. You miss the positive picture. You miss how they developed. You missed what they originally stood for. Okay? Particularly in the Maccabean era when they, uh, they were fighting for their independence and when the, the, when, uh, the Greeks were dominating and when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is defiling their temple and when all sorts of horrible things are happening. Some Jewish heroes stood up. And fought for their independence. And it's a great story. There's a lot of drama there. There's a lot of heroism. There's some sad things that happen. It's, it's, it's a wonderful adventure. But it's history. It's true. Okay? And a lot of these, of, of, of these men, these freedom fighters that eventually became the Pharisees were true national patriots, true heroes. And even when everything, when all the dust settled and they set up this kingdom, the, 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 the Hasmonean uh, dynasty, all right. You know, to this day, the Jews look back at that as their golden era. That was kind of a wonderful time for them. Um, but what the problem with that, though, is that the family of, of, of Maccabees, uh, Joseph Maccabeus there, the hammer, uh, they were Levites, all right. They were a priestly family. And they, they had no business being kings. They had no business establishing a priest-king throne like they did. All right. And uh, you know who it was that stood up and said this is wrong? That the, the, the line of David is the, is the kingly line. The, the tribe of Judah is the kingly uh, tribe. That, that Levi is a priestly tribe. And it's only going to be in Messiah that, these, that these, the offices are going to be blended. Uh, it was the Pharisees. 
that have stood up and said, you know what? Uh, this is wrong. So they weren't afraid of fighting against the pagan Greeks. And likewise, they weren't afraid to stand up and say to John Hyrcanus and some of these others, you know, this is wrong. All right. So it's an interesting uh, study. The term Pharisee is believed to be derived from the Hebrew verb parash to divide or separate. Hence, the Pharisees were the separated ones. Um, you know, and all Jews would pretty much hold themselves separate from Gentiles, but these would hold themselves separate from other Jews, other non-Pharisees. In other words, they were even more separate than uh, than the Pharisee than the, the typical Jew would be. Uh, the separation of which their name speaks and goes on to describe some of the aspects of that. Um, talks about where they arose. The Pharisees could have arisen as an expression of the strict avoidance of heathen customs, for instance, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, or uh, the refusal to adopt Greek ways under the threat of death in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, or the break that occurred after uh, the recapture of the temple in 165 B.C. between the Maccabees and the pious ones. They were called at that time Hasidim. Even to this day, you have the Hasidic Jews. The Hasidic Jews, they're the ones that are the ultra, ultra orthodox and pious. And they have the, they're all in black and they got the hats and they got the, you know, the Pastor Bolander looking little beard going thing there on the side. All right. Um, the pious ones are Hasidim who were willing to fight for religious freedom, but not for political independence. Interestingly enough, all these possibilities have been put forth and goes on to describe. They are first mentioned as an existing party in Israel during the reign of John Hyrcanus. Although their origins preceded that, they're specifically identified during this reign. And uh, Josephus gives us a lot of material there that relates to... In fact, Josephus himself had been a Pharisee on one occasion. And uh, he, when he writes about his own background, and before he was a, a, a Roman general, he was a, uh, a uh, Pharisee. He says he investigated them all. He looked at the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, examined all these groups and said, you know what, I'm going to go with the Pharisees. And he became a Pharisee. Um, the other information there. What I really want to zero in on, because there's the, the positive aspects of it here, until until it got to the point where they were so expert on the law, and when people started to go to them for opinions, for rulings, for what do we do. And they started to simply fall into that trap of being, they had, and Jesus said they seated themselves in the seat of Moses, that they took that position and they started to embrace it and thrive on that because then people needed them. And it really became their, it became their source of power. Because unlike the Sadducees, who were mostly priests, uh, at least a priest could make a claim to, to being, you know, to, to belonging, you know, well, my dad was a priest. I'm on the priestly tribe. This is who I am. Listen to me. I'm a priest. And so they had a power base just based on their heritage, based on being priests. The Pharisees didn't have that. In a sense, they could earn that, that respect, that esteem through their own human effort by becoming an expert in the law, by becoming a, a, a noted teacher, a noted rabbi. And so they could earn a position that by birth they weren't otherwise entitled to see so there was some friction there the the priest could be born into their position the pharisees in a sense worked for it and earned it and and craved that respectful greeting in the marketplaces and and then it, it really does seem to be that hinge then when the people became dependent upon them what does this mean 
you know, Rabbi, am I breaking the Sabbath? Can I do this? And, and so they start these traditions of, yes, you can do this, but you can't do that. You can walk this distance, but no further. See, and then once they started stipulating, you know, every little detail, okay, that gave them the control. And people, and, and particularly, again, as, as Hebrew fell into disuse, when they came back from captivity, almost no one spoke Hebrew. They were speaking Aramaic. But here's these experts, and they can read the Hebrew text. Well, tell us what it means. See, and so it's no longer a matter of read the Bible for yourself and live the Christian way of life. It's a matter of trust us. We'll tell you what to do. All right? And in a way, it's no different than what the Romans did with Latin in the Middle Ages. Nobody spoke Latin or read Latin. They couldn't read the Vulgate, couldn't read the Bible. And the priesthood was more than happy to say, don't worry about it. Just we'll tell you what to do. Follow the ritual. Do what we say. We'll get you into heaven. Okay? And that's where these Pharisees... And, and the thing of it was, was that they were such heroes, such patriots uh, in fighting for their country's freedom and standing up and all the rest of it, that it was that, that populist power where even in the, within the, the Sanhedrin, they didn't want to oppose them because then the people would turn on them. And so even within the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees got more and more influence. All right. So when Jesus Christ comes along and now the people, the, just the hoi polloi, the masses, the ignorant buffoons that they are, right? They start following Jesus. What are these Pharisees supposed to start thinking? They're in trouble. Because it's, it's the popular opinion, it's the, the, the esteem of the people, that's their power. And if they lose that to Jesus, they've got nothing left. Okay? And so they, they confess that here when they say, all men are going to believe in him and we will lose our place. That's what they're afraid of. All right? So I throw this out here, I spend the time to do this, and I'll probably do this again, because there are a lot of parallels with the Pharisees and doctrinal churches. Believers under categorical teaching that can accumulate knowledge and can accumulate a lot of uh, uh, doctrinal content. But what do we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. And if we turn, it's a, it's a short step to taking doctrinal teaching and turning pharisaical with it. As if somehow we're the experts. Come to us. We'll tell you what it means. And don't trust them. Okay? There's some pharisaical arrogance there. And we've got to guard against that. So anticipate the uh, as, as these lessons unfold and we encounter Pharisees in, in more and more different settings, just anticipate that I'm going to make sure I illustrate well enough that we'll understand that Bible church, Austin Bible Church is vulnerable to this. All right? Because I've seen it. I've seen the arrogance. I've seen trouble under doctrinal teaching in, in a lot of cases. All right? And so we're going to highlight that. All right. Do we have any questions? Any follow-up? Was there something else I said I'd get to by the end of our class and I haven't gotten to yet? Maybe I've covered it all. Otherwise, we'll just close in prayer. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Oh, there's lots more. Yeah, there's there's lots more Messianic signs. I mean, being born of a virgin, being born in Bethlehem. There's, there's literally hundreds of First Advent fulfillment prophecies that you can look at yeah but this is simply a, a a list a subset a list of all the things that that the christ would do 
including miracles. Yeah, the, the Christ, it was well known that the Christ was going to do miracles. And so when he comes, he starts doing miracles. That's part of the contrast with John the Baptist, too. John the Baptist did no miracles. Not one. He didn't have to, because every other prophet had to, to verify that they were true prophets. John the Baptist had the privilege of saying, the Christ is coming, here he is. So he didn't need a miracle to validate what he was saying, because he actually produced the Christ and said, all right. And then Jesus came and did all these miracles. So, yeah. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this opportunity together, the opportunity to learn. I pray that we might observe, Father, these things, learn from the example of Christ, and even learn from the example of the Pharisees, Father. We can, we can learn from a negative example. We can learn what not to do. But, Father, uh, we just thank you. You, uh, you are so faithful. You even took a Pharisee and the Pharisee of the Pharisees and turned him into the Apostle Paul and used him to... Give us uh, so much of our mystery doctrine that we appreciate here in the church age. So, Father, teach us from these lessons. Open our eyes to uh, information. Not just the knowledge, Father, but the love that motivates us to, uh, to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.